Hi, this is Dr. Ziegenbein, your favorite rheumatologist and fibromyalgia expert coach. Fibromyalgia has the capacity to rule and even ruin your life. I am here to show you how to stand up to it, how to be your fibromyalgia boss, once and for all. Hello, everyone. I am super excited about today's episode because I have Dr. Howard Schubiner on. Dr. Schubiner is a clinical professor at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. He is the founder and director of Mind Body Medicine Center at the Ascension Providence Hospital in Southfield, Michigan. He's an author of multiple scientific publications, all dealing with chronic pain reprocessing and approach, including studying emotional awareness and expression therapy in fibromyalgia patients. He authored several books. He's director and founder of the Freedom from Chronic Pain course, which is given to physicians and healthcare providers, and which I also took. That's in form of disclosure. And he is the author, one of the investigators in the Boulder Back Pain Study. Welcome to my podcast. I'm very grateful that you accepted the invitation. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. Martine is a great person. She's a great doctor. When she asks me something, I would always say yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So I do want to get to fibromyalgia. That's what my podcast is mostly about, but we talk all things chronic pain and processing therapy. And I would like to start with this Boulder back pain study that you are one of the co-authors, a main investigators. And the reason I want to start with is that the study almost didn't happen. The Dr. Wager, who was another co-investigator, uh, who is a neuroscientist, he wrote a co-forward for the book, uh, The Way Out, which is a book by Dr. Uh, Alan Gordon. And he basically mentioned there that he, you and him had known each other for a long time, but and you had mentioned this pain reprocessing therapy to him before, but he said it never clicked, that he's a neuroscientist, he studies brain circuitry, and it just never clicked. And then just as he was pondering with his student what they might what might be the topic of his I think dissertation. it was yes <laughs> dissertation yes that you just happened to co- contact him again to share the functional MRI images of one of the teenagers that Dr. Gordon was treating for abdominal pain right. and that piqued enough interest that then you guys started talking more about this additional study over which happened to be subgroup of the Boulder back pain study. So I just wanted to get your insight and input onto how you view that the whole thing that it was almost, that it almost didn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was very fortunate. We were, I was talking to Tor, Dr. Wager, uh, about this teenager that you were mentioning and showing the fMRI. And I wanted his help in writing up a little case report for a journal about that. And I was talking to Alan Gordon about it. And Alan was telling me, like, if Tor would be willing to do a a, a more formal study, a randomized controlled trial that Alan said, well, we can do fundraising and get the money. So Alan, on one hand, thought we could get the money. It turned out he was right. We did a big fundraising and we did get raised about $80,000. At the same time, Tor was just starting a back pain study just at that moment. And we were able to piggyback onto that study mm. because Tor said, yeah, if you raise the money for a third arm of the study, you already had one arm of the study being a treatment as usual 
kind of control group. And then he had the second arm of the study, which was a placebo back injection. So it was on back pain. It already was all set up. It had everything going for it. We had to do was add another arm to the study and raise a little more money. And, and it was right there. It was, it was amazing. It was really fortunate. And how incredible that this third arm of the study had shown the most significant results, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. But I just think it's incredible how serendipity and how the universe can sometimes work. The study had 150 patients, all with chronic pain. You were in charge of evaluating patients in that third arm, which had chronic back patients, and you evaluated them for presence of any secondary or additional causes of back pain, explaining the back pain. Is that correct? Right. As part of this study, the idea of this kind of treatment is to help people change their brain to turn off pain. And this is an unusual concept. Most people would think that if you have pain, there must be something wrong in your body. But it turns out, and I've been doing this for 20 years now, and I've been investigating and evaluating people with chronic pain for 20 years, and it turns out that most people, and this is a shocking and revolutionary statement, Martina, but most people with chronic pain do not actually have structural problems to account for that pain. Because most people who have structural disease problems, it becomes obvious over time. Mm -hmm. They get diagnosed with having rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. They get diagnosed with having some infection or fracture or tumor. They get diagnosed with having some very large bulging disc, which is pressing on the nerve. But when those things are ruled out, people end up with chronic pain, and whether it's chronic back pain or chronic widespread pain or pelvic pain or abdominal pain or headache pain. Once you've ruled out the structural causes, you're left with chronic primary pain, saplastic pain. And so that's what we want. And those, for those people, this therapy is in, can be incredibly effective. And that's what we showed in the study right? 75% of the people who took this treatment were pain-free in one month after having 10 years of back pain. I mean, it's amazing. I know. I just want to stress the importance of your job was to allow them kind of to continue or basically deem them as having nociplastic or neuroplastic brain pain, that their pain right. was real, but it was not due to structural injury. And all of them had some final, some kinds of findings on MRIs, but you deemed right. that it was mostly nociplastic pain or neuroplastic. And then they underwent this PRT pain reprocessing treatment. And yes, as you said, 49 out of 50 patients had improvement and 33 of them or 33 out of 50 were almost pain-free. So right. that was truly incredible. Yeah, 33 out of the 50, but it was actually 33 out of only 44 were actually treated with this method. Oh, okay. Right, 50 randomized to this arm of the study, but four of them dropped out and didn't get treated. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. But I'm so I evaluated, turned out I evaluated 45 people. My findings were of the 45, I thought 43 did not have any structural abnormality to actually explain or account for their back pain, which is really phenomenal to hear that. But that's just the way it is. That's what happens when you know how to evaluate people, when you know how to look for the, on one hand, the structural causes, which are, again, as I mentioned, easy to look for. And then what we're doing is we're not only ruling out the structural part, but we're doing an additional step that most doctors don't do. This additional step is to rule in a neuroplastic pain. So, rule in a brain-based pain. And that's the step that 
really helps people understand, you know, what's going on. And since this applies to fibromyalgia patients that I see in my practice, I would love if you could talk a little bit more about that. So I see them in my office to, I see a lot of patients that are referred to rheumatology for pain. That's one of my jobs to rule out or identify source of pain. Mm -hmm. And I think I only started doing the rule in of the neuroplastic pain after I took your course to be completely sincere in October, Mm -hmm. I was quite oblivious of the ways you can do that. So can you summarize those for us, those ways you rule in the neuroplastic pain? And just to clarify, when we say the nociplastic or neuroplastic, it all means neurocircuitry pain, real pain, but not on the basis of structural damage or inflammation. Right, exactly. I'm sure the people listening would know this. Anyone who's ever been in pain knows that all pain is real. Everyone knows that the pain is not fake or imaginary. It's not all in people's heads. It's not because they're weak or deficient or crazy or anything like that. All pain is real. It turns out that our brains have this very interesting circuitry, and everyone's brain has this. It turns out that pain is caused, but all pain is caused by the brain. So if you touch a hot stove, it's not your finger causing pain. Fingers can't cause pain. Only the brain can cause pain. And this is a neuroscience fact. It's just the way it is. And so when you get an injury, the signals go to the brain and the brain then usually turns on pain. Sometimes people get an injury and don't even have any pain. That can happen too, because the brain doesn't always turn on pain with an injury, but it usually does. But it turns out the wiring in the brain is such that if someone has an emotional injury, if someone is under very stressful situations often the brain will turn on pain. And the pain that it turns on is the same as the pain as you would have with a broken ankle. So it can be very severe. Everyone knows that our brain controls our body. Everyone knows if you get embarrassed, your face turns red because the brain is doing that. Everyone knows if you have a sudden scare, you you shake and you're shaking and the brain is doing that. Or you get a, a pain in the pit of your stomach when you hear about some tragic news or some problem you think someone in your family just got hurt or something, you feel it. It's a real pain. I think it's critical that people understand that neuroplastic pain, brain-induced pain is real. And so that's that's where we always start with our patients. And no, I'm sure thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you for driving that home because that's some. I think sometimes we forget that it's important to acknowledge to our patients that yes, absolutely, the pain is real. And I think the stigma has been over the past years or even when I was in training that when we couldn't explain pain or the way we talk to patients that patients might have felt like we were dismissing them or that we did not take them seriously. And that's one of the worst things I now realize that can happen when we right. we don't understand pain, so we don't believe it. Or So I appreciate it. you drove that home. And I do always try to stress that when I talk to my clients and patients that yes, the pain is real, but we are working right. with different type of pain. Right. And so how do we know when the pain is neuroplastic, right? Or how do we know when it's actually being caused by the brain in the absence of tissue damage? Well, one set of clues is when the pain is in multiple places at the same time or in a whole side of the body or a whole arm or a whole leg or a large portion. When it's in a large region, that's a sign that the pain is neuroplastic because there's no single damage that's causing that. You would have found that had you been on the medical evaluation. The second, another thing along those lines is we realize that 
when the pain is spreading over time, it starts in one place and it's spreading over time to other places. I'm just looking this up. Oh, here it is. A third clue that we often see is when someone has an injury and has pain after the injury, but then the injury heals and the pain persists for weeks or months or years. That tells us that it's neural circuit pain because injuries all heal and scars don't hurt. The other thing is when the pain is inconsistent. So when the pain is varying, one day it's there, one day it's not there, or it goes away when you're on vacation, or it's there when you're sitting in a certain chair, but not another chair. I mean, there's such a randomness thing that is so hard for doctors to understand and so hard for people to understand. Why in the world would the pain vary from a one or a two up to a seven or a nine and then go back again? That tells us it has to be the brain because if you broke an arm, your pain is not going to go away and come back. That just doesn't happen. Yet we as humans are somewhat wired to believe that when we have pain, we are wired to believe there is something structurally wrong right. with us. And so a couple other, one more thing is that when the pain is triggered by innocuous stimuli, that's the other major category. So when people have pain, when they have stress or they, or they have pain when they're anticipating a stressful event, or if they have pain when they think about going to the dentist, or if they have pain when they think about exercising, those are all signs that it's the brain inducing pain. And when people have pain that's triggered by computer screens or loud noises or smells or the weather or heat or cold or by light, often by foods. Those are really strong clues that this pain is neuroplastic right? because those things are actually triggering the brain to cause pain. Again, what you're saying is so right that people, everyone always assumes there has to be something wrong in the body. But when we help people understand that our brain is what creates all pain and that the brain often creates pain in the absence of structural damage and that pain is real, then we can look for it. And when you look and when you find it, then that's what it is. Right. I appreciate the summary of these steps that people can go through themselves in their homes to try to figure out, let's say they find themselves in one or two or more of the features of how this pain is inconsistent or how it affects them. And what if they're, what if they feel, well, it sounds like based on these criteria, my pain is neuroplastic, but it's just so hard to believe that the brain could produce such severe pain because their pain 13 out of 10. What is your response to your patients when they say that? Like, how can brain produce such severe pain? Well, I tell them about times when I've had severe pain, when it was due to my brain, my neck pain, my back pain, my leg pain. I tell them about my patients who have had severe pain and who have recovered because now we're giving people hope. You know, most pain, most doctors who work in chronic pain don't give people a lot of hope. They say that the pain is incurable. They say that you'll never get better if you just because you have chronic pain. And we have found that that's not true. And we showed that in our research. So we can give people hope and we can tell them stories about other people and we can help them see, see in their own lives. Just watch and see what happens mm -hmm. when the pain shifts from one side of the body to the other or one part of the back to the other to say, gee, why did that happen? What's going on? That's your brain. You didn't even move. You know, you're sitting there and all of a sudden it, it shifts, right? And you follow these criteria. And over time, you just begin to see that this is the truth for you. 
And when people see that, and then sometimes we have them to start doing some of the techniques. For example, one of I'm sure you know you're aware of this, but some of my favorite techniques are to have people imagine an activity. So if someone has pain with sitting, they can imagine they're standing up and imagine sitting, and sometimes that'll cause pain. Or they can imagine bending over if they have back pain, and that often will cause pain. And when that happens, you go, well, why is that? You weren't actually bending over. It's actually the brain, and that can really help people. So what I hear you say is that you're basically encouraging them to be marveling at what our brain and nervous system can do, like approaching from like, wow, that's really cool what my brain can do. And rather than (laughs) being angry at it, you're like, that's really cool. Well, I hope people can be curious to find out what's going on. That curiosity is what I want to work with my patients together on to, to explore. Let's look at it. I don't jump to a conclusion that the pain is neuroplastic when they walk in the door. That would be wrong. They shouldn't jump to that conclusion. And they shouldn't even jump to that conclusion just because I said it. We want them to see for themselves. Mm. We want them to explore for themselves and take their time and then read about it and read some of the stories about people who've had pain for five or 10 or 20 or 30 years who've gotten better. Those are so inspiring to see those stories. Sometimes I have people talk to some of my other patients who are doing this work so they can hear from somebody else because if they tell their friends and family about it, their friends and family might say, are you kidding? That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't get it. That makes no sense. And then, then they lose hope and then they fall back into this incurable model and just hope that, just pray that they can get better. But we're, we have techniques that once people understand that it is neuroplastic pain, once people get that it is their brain, then we can start working with their brain to turn off the pain. So specifically with uh, patients who have fibromyalgia or who suffer from fibromyalgia, where, where do you start with them? Let's say the scenario is a 31-year-old woman who has had pain for the last three, four, five years. Mm-hmm. It's there all the time in her back, in her hips, in her legs, her arms. The exam is clean in terms of nothing. Inflammatory labs are good. And she's very overwhelmed, very debilitated. She just recently lost her job because she couldn't perform her duties as due to pain. Where do you usually start or what is your kind of, if you can share with us your thinking or your algorithm for where you start? I I start with love. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, I I understand. It's true. You have to start with love. You have to start with compassion. You have to start with listening to people and understanding them and helping them see that you care and that you'll do anything in your power to help. And you talk about how you understand. You don't know what they're going through because only they know. But, you know, for me, I can't even imagine what they're going through. And then I'm asking not only about their, what they're feeling, but also their life. What has gone on in their life? And when did the pain start? And when did it get worse? And what was going on in their life at that time? Because oftentimes people will begin to see a pattern. I'll give them some information about how the brain can cause pain and how stress and emotions can cause the brain to cause pain. And then we can look at their life and see if it even fits or see if it makes sense. Maybe it doesn't make sense to them, in which case, maybe this isn't the right treatment for them. But most of the time, if you take the time and listen carefully and look at their lives, you'll see that the people I see, they may have had some difficulties in childhood. Mm -hmm. They may have had times where 
they felt unsafe in their childhood. Maybe there was a sick person in the family. Maybe they had a parent with a drug or alcohol problem. Maybe they had a parent who was critical. Maybe they were bullied. Maybe they had sexual assaults in their life. So things like that can prime the brain to be more sensitive, to be more reactive to later stress. And so the brain may be primed to be sensitive to that kind of stress. And then later in their life, let's say in their 20s, then maybe they get a difficult boss who reminds them of a difficult parent, or they get a, a partner, a, a romantic partner who dumps them or, or spreads false information about them or things which cause them to feel so hurt, so betrayed, so trapped. And then guess what? The pain starts to happen. And all of a sudden it begins to make sense. It's not that the pain came out of nowhere for no reason. It happened because there was stuff going on in their life that their brain was reacting to. Our brains are like a, a smoke alarm. There's enough smoke, it's going to go off. And if there's enough stress, pain will start. And then we can start looking at these characteristics. Does the pain shift or does it move? How has it changed over time? How has it spread? What other things have they had? And just put the whole picture together and have them read about it and have them watch some videos about it and have them learn and, and just explore and just see, see if it really is right for them, see if it makes sense for them. Have you found that when patients read about this information and the whole concept, have you found that that starts improving their pain itself, that the knowledge is so empowering? Sometimes it can. Sometimes mm -hmm. it can because they can see themselves in the pages of some of the books that we mm -hmm. recommend, or they can see themselves in some of the videos and the stories of people that we recommend. And when they can see that, the thing is, is that Pain is, is reinforced and driven over time by a variety of mechanisms. The more people are fearful and worried and upset about the pain, about what it means, the more they're frustrated by it, the more they focus on it, it becomes all they think about, the harder they try to figure it out. All those things actually make it worse mm -hmm. because they don't know what's going on and they lose hope. And what we're doing is giving them hope and giving them an understanding for it. And when they begin to understand it and they begin to have hope and they begin to separate a bit from the pain, moving back from it a little bit so they can observe it rather than reacting to it with this fear and frustration, if they can begin to set aside the fear and frustration a little bit and have a glimmer of hope and have a mm -hmm. glimmer of the idea that they can be better. That in itself often begins to make shifts in the pain because you're changing the neural circuits in the brain. I love how you say that when you're able to move them back from pain and have them observe, that was one thing you mentioned, and the other that sets aside the fear and frustration. What I have experienced in my practice is that oftentimes patients are, un are unable to set the fear and frustration because they continue to feel that there has to be something wrong there because of either the severity of pain or they had a slightly positive Lyme test, which then confirmatory yeah. came back negative. But so I know that it, there is a very real possibility that I may not be, that I'm, it's the operator problem that I may not be relaying the information, you know, with strong enough emphasis or that it, they don't believe me. But what have you found to be beneficial if your patients continue to be kind of focusing on minor abnormalities in labs that they do not really translate into physical findings. 
Right. Well, sometimes you just have to step back and take a little time. The fact is that most people are not going to understand this at the first, the first time around. Most people are not going to believe it. Most people are going to keep, want to keep looking for some other, some other, you know, physical cause. And that's their right. They can do that. And I encourage them to do that if that's what they need to do at this point. I was talking to a woman today about this. And I was telling her how special she is, the fact that she's engaging in this treatment. She's getting better. She's doing it. I said, you know, most people will really think this is wacko or crazy and they don't think it's real. And she said, well, I was just desperate. I was so desperate. I had tried so many other things and nothing had worked. And so finally I said, well, I've got to, I'm not going to give up got to try something different. And that's when I found your work or your book or your website, she was saying to me, and, and now it's making sense to her. Mm-hmm. And now she's trying to tell other people about it because she's so excited, right? Right. That she's getting better. And I tell her, well, be careful. Other people aren't going to want to hear about it. <laughs> right. Why do you think that is reluctance to accept a role of nervous system in production of pain in the general public? Or Well, I think there's a stigma against psychology. It's a stigma mm-hmm. against people thinking that there's something mentally wrong with them. There's nothing mentally wrong with our patients. There's nothing psychologically wrong. They're just human. And this is how the brain works. They are just human. But there's that stigma. The doctors may not be reinforcing them. Doctors are, are telling them they have things like you say. Some doctors are telling people they have Lyme disease when they don't, or they've got some kind of histamine problem or flexibility problem or all sorts of things, which are not really the answer, but they want to they find something. So they follow that. I can't blame them. Mm-hmm. Their friends and family, you know, they tell, they tell their friends and family, I'm going to look at my brain and see if my brain can stop this. And their friend says, oh, that's silly. You need go see my special physical therapist. He'll help you or go to uh, go to get injections, you know, or, or something else. So there's not a lot of reinforcement for it. But once people get it, all my patients say to me, they say, how come my other doctors didn't tell me about them? Yeah. How come no one told me about this? This is so powerful. This is so real. This is so important. And they say, Dr. Schubiner, you've got to tell everyone else. You've got to train other doctors. <laughs> And it's not like there is lack of really data. I mean, you yourself published some articles on chronic pain in patients with fibromyalgia specifically. So it's not like we don't have data, but I guess there is still some hesitance. And I'm not, maybe because physicians are not psychotherapists. I know you do your own stuff with the emotional awareness expression therapy Mm -hmm. and possibly other things. I was going to ask you about that yet, but maybe that's why. I mean, I'm not sure. Maybe we should teach it in residency or I have, I wished I had learned about this in residency. So I know um, we're starting to teach some medical students. We're starting to teach some residents. There's a, a movie that was a documentary movie that was made, right? Called This Might Hurt. And that, that, that movie is being shown in, in doctor's conferences. That movie is being shown in medical schools. That movie was shown in our medical school. It was shown at Johns Hopkins Medical School and other medical schools which explains this whole process. People might want to take a look at that as a way of beginning to understand it. So going back to my fibromyalgia patient, let's say that I'm able to explain things to the point that she's able to accept the concept. 
where do you go next? Do you implement somatic tracking? I mean, you give them the information to read. I understand that. Right. I usually recommend the Curable app and the Way Out and your book. Um, if they don't, if they are willing to read more, where do you go from there? Like, how do you approach yeah. setup of further sessions? Yeah, what I usually do, I start with what we call pain reprocessing therapy. And then sometimes after that, I may do some work on some of the emotional situations. Mm -hmm. And then the third type of the third type of intervention is to see what they may need to do in their life. I saw a guy who was having a lot of back pain and uh, he had somebody working for him who was a real pain (laughs) and uh, the person quit and his back pain went away. Right. So (laughs) sometimes you need sometimes, you know, some people need to change their job or change a relationship or, you know, set boundaries or whatever. So there's that kind of area. Mm -hmm. But the first thing I always do is the pain reprocessing. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing with that is we're helping people to understand that they're not damaged and to start giving that message to their brain, because people in pain are giving messages to their brain all the time. People who, and we're always talking to ourselves, even if it's not out loud, (laughs) we're sending messages to the brain and the brain is looking to us to see what it should do. It's kind of like when a kid falls off a bike, they look to you Mm -hmm. to see if they should cry or not. And if we, if you as the adult freak out, then they cry. But if you as the adult say, it's okay, you're all right. You smile and say, oh, that was fun, right? Let's get back on the bike. Then they won't cry. And so your brain is the same way. Your brain is afraid. It's scared. It's looking to you to see what to do when the pain comes. And so we're helping people to talk to their brain. And it sounds really silly, but it's incredibly powerful to start soothing and calming the brain without being angry at the brain, without fighting it, and just saying, I'm okay. We're okay. This will be okay. I'm healthy. I'm not damaged. I'm not afraid. I can do this. And so you're giving those messages over and over to your brain. And as you start to walk or go through your day, you're saying, oh, that's my brain, but I'm okay. Mm -hmm. That's my brain, but I'm okay. I'll be all right. So you're continually giving these messages. And then when when you get the pain, we're starting to help people respond to it differently. So instead of saying, oh, pain, that's killing me, we're saying, oh, that's a tingling, that's an energy that's different. I'm okay. I can just kind of watch this a little bit and then I'll just keep moving a little bit gradually, gradually start to teach the brain that you're okay. Gradually start to teach the brain that it's okay. We have a lot of techniques like this. We have people imagine, I was talking about imagination. We have people, if they're having pain with walking, let's say, I'll have them imagine walking and then start to visualize walking with joy. Sounds silly, but visualize because the brain has to learn that walking is safe and not dangerous. And so if people can start imagining walking with joy, imagining walking with freedom, and when they imagine walking, if they get discomfort, then they can smile and say, oh, I see brain, you're afraid. So they imagine walking, they get some pain, and then they calm it, and then the pain goes away. And then they imagine walking again, and they calm their brain, and they imagine walking again. And pretty soon they can imagine walking and not get pain. And then they can walk five steps and maybe they get pain and then they smile and say, oh, I'm okay. This is fine. And they walk five steps again and maybe they get a little bit less pain. And then they walk five more steps and they get a little bit less pain. Pretty soon they can walk 10 steps. And so they're gradually training their brain. It's called graded exposure so that they can teach their brain that they're okay. And it sounds, these techniques are very simple and very silly. We try to do a lot of playing, a lot of laughing, a lot of joking, but the brain responds to that. Mm -hmm. And the research we have shows that it really 
works because we're not talking about coping with the pain or helping people live with it. We're helping people to get rid of it. Right. And that's what people really want, right? They want to get rid of their pain. How, for specifically for patients with fibromyalgia in your hands, what is the time frame that it usually happens? Or does it depend on how long they have had pain? Would no, it doesn't depend on how long they have pain, which is kind of a funny thing. Okay. It depends how quickly their brain can learn. Okay. And you have to train your brain like training a puppy, you know, with kindness and gentleness and persistence and over and over giving the same message over and over continuing to move and walk and begin to do a little bit of exercise with with freedom with joy with safety and so it may take two to six weeks it may take two to six months Mm -hmm. you know somewhere in there most people are starting to see some improvement and see some change i was treating a woman recently who was having trouble she was so afraid of the pain She was like, why am I having so much pain? Why am I having so much pain? Why is it getting so bad? And I kept saying, it's your brain. You're going to be okay. Keep talking to yourself. Keep doing these exercises. I know, but it's really bad one day and then it's not so bad. I go, yeah, because that's your brain. That's okay. Let's do these exercises. And and she was working at it and working at it. She said, but I, I must have this other problem. So she goes to see another doctor. So it takes a while to sort this out. And this is going on for several months. And then finally, she said, I've got nothing to do. All I do all day is just sit at home and be in pain. And I go, yeah, maybe you need something to do. And she goes, yeah, I know. I haven't been working and I can't, not COVID, I can't get out of the house. It's horrible. And so she decided she was going to volunteer at her kid's school two days a week. And since she started doing that, her pain is 50 to 60% better. Oh, my God. It's amazing. She's yeah. so happy. She's not pain-free yet, but she's going to get better. there. Yeah, she's She's better way already. better. Yeah. And she can see some some hope on the horizon. And she's going like, how come I still have some days that are really bad and some days that are really great? And I go, that's your brain. It's still learning. <laughs> You're still but teaching I, it. I do have the same question. Why? Like, is it just like spikes of brain activity in relation to stress? Or is it just like, what would you say? I truly am interested in this question. Yeah. Why yeah. is it sometimes really bad without clear connection to emotional stress? Right. Well, the brain works by this predictive process. It's just trying to figure things out. It's trying to figure things out and predict what's right for the person. And sometimes it predicts pain and sometimes it doesn't. And we don't know why. Sometimes you can see if you have a really stressful day and your pain is worse, that becomes obvious. If you have an argument with a coworker or with a spouse and your pain gets really bad, that's obvious. So that can happen and that does happen. But in addition to that, what happens is the brain has these circuitry. And one set of circuitry in the brain is going to be for less pain or no pain. And another set of circuitry is going to be for more pain or pain in different areas. And when someone's been in pain for some amount of time, the circuitry for pain, the pain circuitry becomes the default pathways. Mm -hmm. It becomes what the brain is kind of stuck in. It becomes what the brain is used to doing. So it keeps doing it until we teach it otherwise. And so when the brain starts to shift and when we start to give all these safety messages and we start to help people feel less trapped and deal with some of the stress in their life and deal with some of the emotions and help to be happier in their lives and help to do more things, all that stuff, then their brain will go, okay, and it'll start to turn on these, activate these no pain pathways, right? These, the circuitry for no pain. And it'll do that for maybe an hour or a minute or or a day or three days. And then the brain will go, it'll just fall back into the old pathways. (laughs) Got it. Okay. And they'll go on again. And then if you get really afraid and you start freaking out and get so frustrated, why did it come back? Well, I'm so upset. I can't stand it. I can't take it anymore. Well, then the brain does more of that. Right. 
right? But if you meet this sensation, these new sensations with, oh, that's a warmth, that's a tingling. I'm okay. I can handle this. It'll go away. I know it's fine. I know it's my brain. I'll just be patient. I'll take a rest. I'll keep going. I'll try to have fun in my life. Then the brain will shift back to the no pain circuitry. And it'll go back and forth. Sometimes it goes back and forth 10 times a day. But every time you meet the sensations with this calm, with this knowing, with almost a smile, like you would smile at a kid who you caught their hand in a cookie jar. You just smile. So I see you. When you do that, then it's training the brain. And every time you do that, your brain is learning. And eventually you get better. I have to say, I like the comparison of the brain or our nervous system to a small child. Like you have to kind of treat it as that. I really like that comparison because I imagine my (laughs) five-year-old. So (laughs) that helps. I was going to ask you, you mentioned that you've done it for 20 years now, which is a long time. What do you think gives you more confidence in the outcome for your patients? The fact that you were able to overcome your own pain, your own neuroplastic pain, or the fact that you have seen so many people get better in your hands with your treatments? Are you implying that I'm just really old? Is that it? No, (laughs) No. you said it. You have been doing it for 20 years. I'm just starting. So I guess I want to see whether I have to wait 20 years to be as well. Well, you could use, maybe maybe you need some more gray hairs. Maybe that would help, right? No, I think it's a lot of it is experience. We learn every every day. I learn every day. I'm learning from my patients. Mm -hmm. I'm learning more and more from what they see. And the more I see patients, the more stories I have to tell. Oh, yeah, I've seen when you had a setback. I've seen that. I know that happens. It'll be okay. I've seen when the pain shifts or moves. Yeah, we see that all the time. I've seen when the pain goes feels better, but you start to get anxious. Or I see when the pain in the back gets better, but the pain in the head gets worse. You know, I've seen all this stuff. I have a lot of stories to tell people and a lot of reassurance to say, yeah, I've been there. I've seen people with this. You are going to be okay. And so everyone needs someone they can rely on. Everyone needs someone they can lean on. And I just try to be as positive. I often say I'm really a cheerleader. I'm your cheerleader. What color pom-poms do you like? I really like that. I really like what you said about it. Everybody needs someone to lean on. It's so true every day. Yeah. So you touched upon emotions processing. I would like to talk about that again. Basically, to which point do you bring emotional processing into the process whenever the client brings it up or whenever you feel they're ready? You know, it depends on the person. Not everyone needs to deal with stress and emotions or trauma to get better. Many okay. people don't. In our Boulder back pain study, we didn't do that kind of work very often at all. But on the other hand, we, there is a strong connection between stress and emotions and trauma and pain. It's well known that people who have adverse childhood experiences, histories of abandonment or abuse or neglect or criticism or problems in the family are more likely to have chronic pain. We know that. And sometimes it can be really freeing, really feel good to be able to let the feelings out. Because what happens is sometimes our feelings get stuck in ourselves. We're living in a state of constant stress and worry and anxiety, or we're living in a state of low-level anger or resentment, or we're living in a state with guilt or shame that we did something wrong or, or there's something bad about us or wrong with us. And all those feelings are living in a state of hurt and grief. All those feelings that are just held inside, we have simple techniques to help people deal with them, to help people recognize them, to help people express them, and help people release them so they can feel less burdened 
by the stress that they've been under and they've been under real stress. And these are real things that do cause pain. And do you do that with your patients yourself or you have, you'll work with a therapist? That I, I've learned to do it myself right? And <laughs> because there, not- were, there weren't that many therapists who were doing that kind of work. That was one of the one part of or one of the publications you did, I think was it with Dr. Lumley about emotional awareness expression technique or therapy for patients with fibromyalgia. And I think in that study or in that cohort, you had two-thirds improvement or two-thirds of the patients improved. Is that continue to be the case in the patient population you see every day in your practice? Yeah, well, the, the funny thing about that study is it was just the emotional awareness part, so it didn't include the pain reprocessing part. So our results are better than that because we're doing both. We're using both therapies together, and we're doing a lot of the assessment part and the, that we talked about at the beginning. So when you put everything together, the results are really, really quite good. Was there a follow-up that I missed? I think it was. No, no, no. That wasn't published because oh, okay. Okay. I'm just okay. saying in that study, we could only do, because of the constraints of the research study, we could only do one form of therapy. We okay. couldn't we couldn't add both of them. But in our everyday practice with our patients, we're doing both. That's what I'm saying. And so in terms of the emotional awareness and expression therapy part, we're helping people to recognize that maybe they have, they're holding in some amount of anger or resentment toward somebody who hurt them. And we have ways of helping people to express that resentment, that anger and resentment in a healthy and safe way, not by being violent in the world, which mm-hmm. is harmful, causes problems, but by, and not by holding the anger in, by expressing it in writing or expressing it by imagining, saying whatever they needed to say to the person or do whatever they needed to do to the person to protect themselves. Sometimes we have people go back in time to when they were a child and and help protect that child who was them from any kind of trauma or abuse. And we allow them to express this anger so they can let it get it up, let it up, and then let it out, and then let it go, and then move through the anger to feeling compassion, compassion for themselves, compassion for their younger self, their child who was them, helping them to allow, see that their grief and their hurt is important, and that it means compassion. So what we're, this process that we've written about and researched on can really help people to free them from some of the stress and trauma that's gone on in their life. I love how you said you start with love and compassion when you're first evaluating the patient, and it kind of goes full loop into when you're working with the emotional awareness process with the patients, they you'll end with love for themselves when they were their younger selves. I just love how the compassion love always comes in, that it's a key ingredient. It's the key ingredient. And so many people who've been hurt or have had difficult experiences, they find that they're really good at offering compassion to others, but not so good at offering compassion to themselves. And we see that a lot. And so that's part of the treatment is to help people be kind to themselves. And if they can be kind to themselves and they can, can be kind to their brain, and sometimes being kind to yourself means saying no, standing up for yourself, take making sure that you protect yourself. And so many people with fibromyalgia and other chronic pain syndromes are the nicest people and the most caring people, but they're also often self-sacrificing. Mm-hmm. They sometimes put themselves last. They feel that they're not good enough. They feel guilty that they're not doing enough. These kind of ways of being put more pressure on the person actually is one of the driving forces for pain 
one of the things we found is that when people do this work, not only do they get better in terms of less pain, but they're happier because they're doing what they need to do for themselves in their lives. They're taking care of themselves, protecting themselves, standing up for themselves. They're being the person that they want to be. And that is a benefit because the pain is not, in a lot of ways, the pain is not the problem. The pain is a solution their brain has devised to alert them to problems in their life. When they, oh, that's, when they start that's, solving the problem in their life, then the pain goes away. I don't think I've heard you say that before. I, pain is the solution to the problem in their uh, that what the brain thinks is a solution right. to the problem in their lives. It's that's, like the smoke. The solution a smoke alarm has is to make a very loud sound to alert right. you. That's a solution to the problem of smoke. That's the only solution a smoke alarm can do. But it's an important solution. Right. The, the brain can't solve your problems for you, but it can alert you to, to the problems. Right. So basically pain is a message. Pain exactly. A message. Okay. Exactly. I was going to ask some follow-up questions that I had when I, when we talked about or earlier in our, in our interview, you said that you have your patients read about other patient stories who recovered as a means of getting them acquainted with the concept. Do you have them read your book or one of your books or Alan's book? Or do you have you kind of summarize some stories, written format you give them? What what do you usually, or you have the resources like the TMSW, IKI? Yeah, yeah I point people to the TMSWiki.org, TMS right? The PPDassociation.org. Those are great websites, all nonprofit, all run by people who are just caring, trying to help. Uh, my website, unlearnyourpain.com, has a lot of stories on it. I've got a bunch of videos explaining pain. I've got a set of animated videos that people can see. I read some on YouTube. I saw some on YouTube. They're very cute. <laughs> yeah, so some cute, cute animations. And there's books. There's, you know, there's a lot of books that we have as resources. Some I've written, some other people have written. Do you find your patients generally very motivated to devour these resources? Or I have been finding that many of my patients prefer spoken word when I talk to them, but I guess it's very individual, right? Yeah, it depends on the person. Some people want to do a lot of reading and do a lot of reading ahead of time, even before seeing me. I always suggest to do some reading before they see me. Some would rather just work with me and just work together. So it really depends. But I think in general, the more people know about it, the more they understand it, the better they're going to be, the quicker they're going to get better. I have some colleagues who are in the rheumatology group that I'm part on Facebook. And if there were some interested, who, you know, how to learn more about your method, would they sign up for the Freedom from Chronic Pain course? Or what would you recommend? Do you still yeah, do there's, that? There's, there's a lot of courses that we're starting to teach now. We, uh, a group I'm working with has set up a program called OVADX, which is an app, a mobile app for training professionals okay. how to do this work so they can do it on their own. So that's going to be rolling out in the next month or so. So that, that's exciting. We have this spring, I'm running a course with Charlie Merrill specifically for physical therapists who want to do this work. There's the course you mentioned coming up this spring that Hal Greenham and I will be teaching, an eight-week course. How many uh, times a year do you teach this course? We teach that course two, twice a year, or maybe even probably twice a year, I'm hoping. Alan Gordon, his group, the Pain Psychology Center, teaches a PRT course that's mm -hmm. four weeks in length. That's really good. Mm -hmm. uh, Mark Lumley and I are going to be teaching a course in emotional awareness and expression therapy. So there's a lot of opportunities for training. 
And if anyone's interested in where people can email me, they can get on my email list. I send these out periodically so they'll be notified of all new courses. And uh, there's a spot on my website. I'm redoing my website and there'll be a spot there for training so that all the courses will be listed. On your website, the Unlearn Your Pain or Freedom from Chronic Pain? Unlearnyourpain.com. Dot com. Okay. I feel like I asked you all of the questions I had before. I'm sure I'm going to come up with more after, but do you have anything else to say to my fibromyalgia listeners who suffer with pain or just starting on this journey? What yeah. What I want to say to them, to them is don't give up hope. Don't think that you're so broken or incurable. Please don't think that because that just makes it worse. Please know that there is hope, that these methods work. And the more you can understand them and the more you can understand the brain and the more you can look at your life and see if this fits for you, I think you'll find that it will fit for you. And there's a lot of resources out there that you can learn from. And so by just taking it slow and by looking at the resources and looking to see how these model fits you, you will find that it most likely it will. As you begin to investigate your life, and see how your sensations, not just the pain, but the fatigue or the brain fog, how the anxiety or how the depression or the migraine or the irritable bowel, you can see how those will shift and move and get better and worse and move around. And when you see that, you're, you're just, as soon as you understand that it's your brain producing all these different symptoms, or all these different sensations, you can start to see, wow, they're really shifting. They are changing. Maybe there is hope. Maybe I'm not all that damaged because what I tell people is you think, you tend to think you're so broken because so many people have told you you've got so many things wrong with you. But in reality, there's only one thing wrong, which is this neurocircuitry in the brain. And it's fixable. That is a great thing to understand. Just listening to you, I mean, I got chills and I had a surge of hope believing that, yes, this is possible. Thank you so much, Dr. Schubiner, for joining me on the podcast, for donating your time, your knowledge, your expertise. I really, truly appreciate it. I'm not saying bye. I'm going to post your where, they, where to find your information on my with the episode. And thank you so much again. Thank you, Martina. It's a pleasure. You take care. That was it for today. If you loved the episode, please share with someone who can benefit from listening and leave me a five-star review. You can find me at www.winningatfibromyalgia.com or on Facebook at Martina Lenartova, L-E-N-A-R-T-O-V-A. I look forward to talking to you next time.